All right. How's everybody doing? I'm good. Don't you love starting the service with a baptism? Like we always used to, and, and we still, okay, some of you are like, well, I don't know, jury's out. <laughs> I feel like sometimes we wait till the very end and like we miss just the joy and the excitement of what God has done. And, and so anyways, it was fun. Like the wet look looks great for you, by the way. Yeah, that looks great. Well, um, my name is Todd. Um, I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Cornerstone and uh, I love being a pastor here at Cornerstone. And so if you're somebody that's new here, um, maybe just visiting, glad you're here. I'm glad you're a part of our service today, whether this becomes your local church or not. Man, it's a joy for us to have you today. And for all of you old timers, you know I love you. Like I just absolutely love this church. It's a joy to be here. So we're gonna be opening up God's word. If you need a Bible, there's gonna be some gentlemen, I think today coming down, uh, bringing some Bibles. You can just raise your hand up. If you don't have a Bible, please, please take it. Like we want you to be able to have it as a gift from us to you uh, to read. We're passionate about God's word. And so we love to give, hand out the scriptures to people in the hopes that, that uh, they see the beauty of God in the midst of those scriptures. So we've been working through uh, the book of Matthew, specifically kind of talking about discipleship a little bit. A bit. We've kind of called our series, The Gospel of Matthew and Apprenticing with, with Jesus. But we took a little bit of a, a slowdown here as we got to Matthew 19 because I wanted to deal with both marriage. I wanted to deal with singleness. That's what we'll be dealing with next week. Christian will be dealing with that. I wanted to talk through not only marriage from the standpoint of two believers, but what does it look like if I'm married to an unbeliever? And we, so we talked about that last week. And this week what I want to do is I want to handle the issue of being married to someone who claims to be a believer but may not be a believer. And I'm going to talk to you what that means just so that you can, you can get it and you can understand even how we want to come alongside of you and, and walk with you in that way. But from the standpoint of where we're coming from is that the great killer of marriage, let me just say this from scripture, is hardness of heart. And I know I keep saying this, but I think it bears repeating. That's why Jesus came. He came to transform the hearts of people. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, my hope is that you'll encounter the king and that in encountering him, your heart will be transformed too and you'll see life from a whole new perspective. You will not be perfect. None of us in here claim to be perfect. We, in fact, there are many of us that are further from perfection than others. I don't know. I'm one of them. But I just love the fact that God loves to transform lives. And so that's my hope for you. But on this hardness of heart issue, the thing we also begin to talk about in Matthew 19 is not only that, but we, we transferred over into 1 Corinthians 7 because Paul was making a commentary on this particular passage. And so he said, not I, but the Lord. And he, he gave us a greater insight of what does it look like for two people that are followers of Jesus to be married together. And we came up with four big things from those two passages. And so if you're a follower of Jesus here today, married to a follower of Jesus, we found that in it, that what we're called to be is we're called to be faithful, which is we create security. We're called to be holy, which is a special, unique relationship that God has given us. It's called to be permanent, steadfast, sticking with it to the very end. Grace empowered, meaning we can't do it on our own, but we're made sufficient in Jesus. And so what we're saying is, is in a culture not only like that time, whether we're in Judea or the rest of the Roman world that had made kind of divorce this kind of willy-nilly thing, we could just do whatever we want, which is in, it's in our time and our age. We believe that marriage is special. We believe marriage was designed between, by God between two people for life. We believe it's sacred. 
And so we push for and we want to help you. If you're somebody here today that is a follower of Jesus and your marriage is struggling, we want to help you walk through it. So our hope is, is that you come and talk to us. But it's not just people that are married that are believers, but sometimes we're married to an unbeliever. And so we looked at 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 14, and we talked through this idea that if you're married to an unbeliever who wants to stay, well, stay. Stay with them. Why? Because that person's in a privileged position. We talked about that front row seat to get to watch what God is doing. But there's another side of it in the next passage in 15 through 16, where if the person wants to leave, Paul says in this particular case, well, let them go. In fact, by letting them go, the whole hope is they will understand what a privileged position that they sat in being married to somebody that has the Holy Spirit inside of them that's a child of the living God that they will return. And that's the point of verse 16, they'll return and see how good God is. But today, like I said, what we want to look at is we want to look at what if I'm married to someone that claims to be a believer and they're not? What do I do in the case like we see in verse 9? Look, if you look down at Matthew 19, verse 9, what if somebody's been sexually unfaithful to me and they continue to be sexually unfaithful to me and they claim to be a follower of Jesus? Todd, you said last week that's antithetical. That's contrary to the way God intended marriage. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to walk it through? Then let me just say this. When we break the covenant in that way, we're going to learn in a, in a powerful way God will work us even through that. Like he worked through a, with a, a believer with an unbeliever. There's a way to work through these things. And he talks about, if you remember right, in such cases, we talked about it's not just marital unfaithfulness, but there are these other things that are antithetical, that are contrary to the way God intended marriage, that man in some ways and sometimes we do have to turn that spouse over to Satan. And so we talked about that last week. But the main thing is Grace. If you remember right, no matter if you're someone who's married to an un- a believer, if you're married to an unbeliever, if you're married to a believer who claims to be uh, a believer, if you're single, no matter where you are, grace was the big issue. But here's what I want to tackle today is this idea of, of the person that claims to be a believer. Now, I want to stop and just be pastoral for just a second. And so let me just slow down. And man, I, if, if you're already starting to check out, check back in. If you're somebody here today that claims to be a follower of Jesus, but you're really struggling whether or not you wanna be a follower of Jesus. I believe there are sincere questions that people ask, and I want you to know you can be safe here asking these questions. I want you to know that this is a place to be able to do it. Kind of in our, our world for the last maybe five, 10 years, there's been this thing about called deconstruction or deconstructing our faith, or we use different terms for that. But oftentimes people question their faith away from the church because they're afraid to do that. I'm telling you that if you're somebody that maybe came to Christ <clears throat> or somebody especially that grew up inside of the church and you're just struggling with what you believe about Jesus, don't do that in a vacuum. I said this last week, come to us on all kinds of issues, but on this one, come to us. I want you to know we're here. We want to walk with you. We want to help you ask those questions. You will not be turned away. You will not be treated weird. What I'm about ready to work through is not a person who's asking sincere questions, but I think I'm about ready to work through somebody that knows scripture, that knows all kinds of things, that knows how to use scripture against other people, and those are the people that I want to be uncomfortable here. So if you're somebody that's just here questioning and wondering and maybe you grew up, like I said, in a church and there's a blessing and a curse to it and you just want to know, 
This is a safe place to do it and we want to make sure that the doors are always open to work through questions of faith and who's Jesus and why should we follow him and questions about the Bible. So is everybody with me at this point? We love you and we want this place to be that kind of a place. But the one thing I've seen over and over again is when men or women, I've seen it in all kinds of ways, use these passages of scripture against a brother or sister that they're married to and they've wronged. I'll never forget this. I was a young pastor. I was sitting with a a guy and, and this couple was in front of us and as we walked into the room, I saw the, the woman in this particular case and she looked like the world had just landed on her with every force that it could. Her face, her body posture, everything just looked like a woman that had been beat up and put away wet. And I looked over at the man and he was smug and arrogant, chest out, had his Bible in front of him already opened, ready to go. And as we started to interact with them, I was a young pastor at that time. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm sitting there going, I don't know what to do. I can kind of see what's going on here, but I don't know what to do. And the guy that I was with, I'll never forget this. He looked over at the woman and he goes, I really love you. And I'm going to tell you I love you because I'm about ready to talk to him. And he started to go off on this man. He goes, I'm looking at a man that is smug and arrogant. I'm looking at a man that is a Pharisee, because I can already tell you, you already have all the answers that you want to tell me. I'm looking at a man that knows the answers and knows how to use them against this poor woman, and you're going to use them in such a way to trap her inside of a marriage that has nothing to do with what God intended, and he just started reciting to him the seven woes of Matthew 23 and he said you're that Pharisee you're him I'm sitting there the whole time going go but what was crazy as as he came at this man and he was doing it in love don't miss this I watched this woman just as the balloon began to get filled up again She'd gone to pastor after pastor after pastor for help. And the one thing they kept telling her, well, you're just going to have to figure out what does it look like to be married to a difficult man. Now, sometimes we do, right? Sometimes we do have to do that. But sometimes I believe we're actually supposed to confront somebody and in confronting them, we're gonna find out, are they honestly a follower of Jesus? Because not only does God give a process for people that are followers of Jesus or people that are married to someone who's not a follower of Jesus, I think he gives us a process to determine what are we supposed to do with this arrogant, smug, potentially deceitful, whatever it might be person that's right in front of us, how are we supposed to walk with them alongside of somebody that's deflated because in life, this person just keeps beating up this person over again. Maybe not physically, but let's just say metaphorically. They know how to play the game. They know how to kind of work through it. But in the church's kind of effort to deal with willy-nilly divorce, we've forgotten there's another way that we need to go from scripture to deal with people that are arrogant and smug and that hurt people inside of marriage. The last thing that he said in there, and I'll never forget this, is he looked over and he said, that woman right there is my sister in Christ. She is the daughter of the God most high. 
And I'm calling you right now, we're not going any further, I'm calling you to repent and to return because I care about you. And I believe the greatest thing that could happen is if you repent from what you're doing and return and we begin to restore you and to help you restore your marriage, but you need to go consider it. He walked out of the room. I walked out of the room with him. He gave the lady a hug when we got out and he looked at the man and he goes, I'll be in contact. See, the place that he was going was is he was realizing that there's really such a thing as somebody that calls themselves a Christian. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5.11. One of the people in our sermon prep this week, he had a church he used to be of, he goes, there's believers and then there's make-believers. And that's, in a lot of ways, what this guy I was with was gonna find out. Are you a believer or are you a make-believer? Do you have hardness of heart or has God gripped your life? That's what we're gonna find out. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 is a commentary on Matthew 19, but we talked about this when we went through this passage a little bit earlier. We'll, we'll talk more about it, but in 1 Corinthians 5, it's a commentary on Matthew 18. Paul's helping us understand how do we deal with a Christian in name only, and he describes this person. Look at it in verse 11. He, he describes what this person is. They are one who is or who are Sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. What's so fascinating, if you were here last week, you would have heard, this is exactly the list that, that Wayne Grudem was putting together on the in such cases, these other things that are, that are reasons why a marriage might need to be ended. But the interesting thing about this is not just that it's antithetical or contrary to God's intent for marriage, the words that are used here are someone who is presently habitually sexually immoral, presently and habitually greedy, presently and habitually an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, a swindler. They have no desire to change whatsoever. They're acting like they're someone who is not a follower of Jesus. You see this in 1 Corinthians 6. Let me just kind of show you that. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous, those that are not followers of Jesus, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, here's our words again, the idolaters, the adulterers, the passive homosexual partners, the practicing homosexual thieves, the greedy, drunkards, verbally abusive, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, their hearts are still hard. Jesus hasn't transformed them. They might have said a prayer when they were five, which I've seen people that have said prayers when they were five, and it was definitely true and authentic. But I've walked with way too many students that have gone through and they've come out the other side of the church when they're 18, and they are no longer followers of Jesus. They embraced the idea of Jesus. They didn't embrace Jesus. But the passage I love in here is verse 11. Some of you once lived this way. And I love this. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That is not who you are anymore. You may struggle with sin. You may battle with it in an ongoing way. But it is not habitually present in your life. It's not something that you want to stay in. You want to change. You want to fight in it. You understand that it's antithetical. It's contrary to the way God has us. 
He says, that's who you used to be, but that's not who you are anymore. And so if you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, you are a new creation in Christ. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. You have been made completely different. That's how powerful this message of the gospel is. Now in 5.1 though, he's gonna tell us the problem in, in Corinth. Look at this. Verse one, there is sexual immorality among you. He says it's not even of a kind that's tolerated among pagans, among people that aren't even followers of Jesus. Well, what is it, Paul? A man has his father's wife. In other words, a man is having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmom. Okay, that might happen in Wyoming where I'm from, but that shouldn't happen, <laughs> right? Paul's like, that's crazy. This habitual reality, we can tell from the rest of the text that this person has no desire to walk away from it. In this case, you can see this, even those who don't follow Jesus are looking at this going, who does that? He was having an inappropriate relationship, but notice the church's response, verse two. And you are arrogant. You're not dealing with that. Now I say all that because there are so many people throughout my time as a pastor within a church. They've come to us and said, my marriage is struggling. It's falling apart. I don't know what to do. And so often what we do is, is we try to go in and we try to fix it up and we look at one of them and the male or the female, whichever one, and we just say, well, you're just gonna have to learn to deal with a difficult marriage, but we don't do this issue of what Paul's calling them to do, which is healthy and it's good and it's whole, confronting people. I feel like we've like lost the art of confrontation. And when I say this, I don't mean being a jerk. There's some people that love confronting too much. You know what I mean? There's some people that live to confront. And if you're right now going, that's right, amen, confront them, you might be that person I'm talking about right now. <laughs> I don't mean confront from arrogance. I mean confront from grace and humility and care for that person that's sitting in front of you right now. Paul says, that is arrogant. You ever thought about how arrogant it is to sit there and let somebody that acts like a Pharisee continue to control another human being, somebody that Jesus died for with his very blood? You're gonna sit in there and let that happen instead of confronting this one that claims to be a follower of Jesus as a good for that person so that we can determine their heart, but to protect the one that is sitting there going, I don't know what to do. And Paul even says in there, you ought to be crying. I remember sitting there with that guy and I remember just watching as this guy confronted this man and her eyes coming up and looking at us. And you know that thing that wells up inside of you, just you're gonna cry and you're fighting it off for everything that you are? I was mourning. This lady was looking for someone, someone to come alongside of her. And so often, because the church has had a wooden understanding, whether it's only either number one, maybe a sexual sin, specifically adultery, or it's only abandonment, you need to stay in there. 
But then what happens is, is that the other person then knows that about them, and that's what this guy knew. He knew that. In fact, he piped up at one point and he said, I, listen to me, I'm not out having affairs with all kinds of women. I'm not doing anything sexual. I haven't abandoned her. I provided for her all the time. And there was just this smugness and this arrogance coming out of him. He knew how to play the game. That's what Pharisees do. They know the letter of the law, but they don't know the heart of the law. They know the letter of Scripture, but they don't know the heart of Scripture. And in that moment, as that guy and I walked away, I was wondering in the back of my head, what's going to happen? Because I knew what Don meant by this, is that that man, if he didn't respond and repent, needed to be removed. And we'll talk about what that means here in just a second. But the most loving thing that we can do for somebody in this particular context of arrogance and pride is to remove them for their good so that they repent. But to protect this one that's been hurt and been harmed by the grace of Jesus. Now what should we do then? What does it mean well, in chapter five at the very end, when he talks about it, he talks about this idea of being removed, but that being removed moves us to Matthew 18. And if you want to learn more about this, I preached on it November 5th, 2023. I've even got the date written down. It's called Where Two or Three Are Gathered. I talked about what happened between my mom and my dad. I tried to tell that story along with it. But when men or women abuse power, when men or women use this against others, what are we supposed to do? Well, it's what this guy did. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault when the two of you are alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. He says, confront them in the hopes that their heart is not hard and they will respond to it like David did with Nathan when he came and confronted him and helped him understand. Go confront him in that way. Go confront him and reveal his heart in which he is. If he doesn't listen, verse 16, take one or two others with you. What was fascinating is, is this guy took me along with one of our other pastors and we went and we met with him. And again, this idea so that the testimony may be affirmed, you know, between these people established to come to him again and say, please, please, please Repent. He still didn't repent. And it says, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, look at this words, treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, treat him like he or she is an unbeliever. Now this is sobering. It's something that doesn't happen overnight. It's something that has a process to it. With this particular gentleman I'm talking about, I still don't think to this day that he's repented, but it hit me. Somebody should have done this a long time ago in his life. See, that's one of the beauties of being in the church is we get to confront one another. We get to look at one another and say, something's out of place here, something's not right. So that it doesn't get to that point now where a marriage is falling apart, a family's falling apart, everything's falling apart. God gives us his church, his family to care for one another in that way. That's why he says go to one another, confront one another. 
But the key there is, is to treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, you've assessed their hardness of heart. You've found it to be true. They are somebody that it is habitually present. They have no desire to change. It's antithetical to God's intent for marriage. It's contrary to God's intent for what he created it to be. You've just revealed they have a hard heart. That's Matthew 19. Paul says, walk them through this. Now again, I can't say this enough. It takes patience. It takes time. We'll talk about that in here a little bit. But what he means by being a tax collector or means by being a Gentile, he talks about it in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verse 11. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with, not to have fellowship with. He says, not even to eat with such a one. Table fellowship was the most, most intimate form of fellowship that in some ways that there was amongst God's church. To sit down and have communion with one another at your table was precious. And he says, I don't want you to even do that. And for the longest time, I've even wondered, how can the woman or a man that's married to somebody that goes under church discipline that we treat as a tax collector, or we treat as one like this, we treat them as one that they're not even supposed to be with, how do they even stay married with them? If we have to treat him in this way, how does that even happen? Well, I think the answer is here. It's found in this idea sometimes you have to let somebody go get their sin. You have to let them go. I know on a lot of levels that's scary because that's that awful position the person is going to be in. See, to let them go has a certain significance to it. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, at the, verse 5 at the very beginning, you deliver someone to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. I remember so many times I've been sitting there in the process of church discipline, and it's overwhelming to me to think I'm handing this person over to the most powerfully created being ever. To sift them, to go after them. They'll no longer live in the presence of one who is who's truly a follower of Jesus that has the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That means they will be out there and they will go after their sin. They will not be in that holy privileged position. We're turning them over to Satan. But I want you to see this. Why? For the destruction of the flesh. But why? So that that person might be saved in the day of the Lord. There's a salvation issue here. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal. Now, in the story of the prodigal, I don't know how many of you have heard of it. It's one of the most famous stories out of the New Testament. But Jesus is telling the story of an older man that's got two sons. And one of the sons comes up and says, give me my inheritance. It's time for me to go experience the world. Now, in some ways, I don't think we think about it. But that was the father actually now looking at the son going, okay, are you sure you want this? Give it to me, Dad. I want to go experience the world. And as he hands over that money, in the back of his head, you got to think, he's thinking, go get your sin. Why would a dad give up that much? Because he loves that son. Go get your sin. We learn in verse 13 that he starts to live exactly probably how the father thought he would. He spent everything, verse 14, 
suddenly a severe famine, he couldn't get a job, so he finally now, for Jewish people, the worst thing you could imagine is to feed pigs. He was even eating with the pigs, it talks about in verse 16. And then suddenly in verse 17, it says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise, go to my father. I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In other words, now we're getting somewhere. Go get your sin. Why? Because you're going to look back at your father's house and go, that was good. I want to go get me some of that. He was even willing to go back, not as a son, but look at that, as a servant. And he rose and went to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and wanted to now go up and confront him for his stupidity. You big moron, pointing a finger in his face. No. He felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. In other words, dress this boy because he's not ready for a party. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. He must have been from Wyoming. I know that, you killing cows. Let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Why do we say go get your sin? Because we want this. We want the joy of the son coming back in that moment. The father, don't think you're wrong. I'm not the father. I'm, I'm not Papa Todd. I'm talking the father coming and just loving on that one that's returned. And if you've ever been one who's returned, you know the love of the father in that way. Kill the calf. Let's celebrate. My son has come back. That's why I believe in church discipline. Because I believe somebody, some people need to go get their sin to see how good the Father's house really is. If someone truly repents, one of the things we have to understand is we need to take them back. You'll see this like in 2 Corinthians 2 where potentially Paul's talking about this person that they turned over to Satan and he says, look, for such a one, this one that they turned over to Satan in some way, this punishment by the majority is enough. So she rather turn now, forgive him, comfort him, for he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are ignorant of, because we are not ignorant of his designs. In other words, bring that boy back in, love them, care for them, because be careful Careful, your heart might get hard. Your heart might get hard. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a story for that. It's the older son. In this story, it talks about the older son, and he's out in the field, and he's doing his daddy's work. He's the poster child of what you know the good son is. He's out there, and he's coming near. He suddenly hears music. It says and dancing, and he calls one of the servants. Says, "Come here, I need to ask you something." What's going on here? He said, no, check this out. Your brother has come back. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he was received him back safe and sound. In other words, you know the older brother's like, yes. 
If you've parented long enough, you know that ain't true. There's something about brothers and sisters where it's like, oh, he's gonna get his. And then when he doesn't, it's like, mom, dad, you're so unfair. You should have given him what he deserved. And I'm always looking at my kids, you want me to give what you deserve? Verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. He says to his dad, look, what? Because his dad says out, he goes, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours comes home, not his brother, notice this, your son, this is what my children and I, or my wife and I say about our children many times, your son, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to his son, You're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead, but he's alive. But now he is found. In other words, as we turn somebody over to Satan, we long and we look and we watch for that person to return and we get the calf ready to get killed because we need to party. If you're offended by killing a calf, then we can kill a gourd or (laughs) something else. We discipline with expectation. We discipline from humility. We discipline not to have them get theirs, but that they might encounter the king. In Galatians 6, it talks about this. Paul, writing to a different group of people, says, Brother, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you are spiritual, should restore him in his spirits and gentleness. But he says in there, keep watch on yourself. Because you might get hard. You might become the older brother. You don't want to become that. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you brothers, admonish the idol. To be, to be idle means to be this one who, who is, who's fighting against the goads. He's, he's not acting in line with the gospel. You're to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. But look at that key aspect of it. Be patient with all. If you're somebody right now that's married to a believer, or one who calls himself a believer but is acting like an unbeliever, there is a process for you. But let me say this, you are not to do it alone. You're to do it in the context of a local church, a group of people that love you and care for you. Don't trust yourself to determine it. I've always found when I'm in my most difficult moments, my mind is so in the wrong place to make decisions. Find others, godly men and women that you can place around you that aren't your echo chamber that tell you what you want to hear, but tell you what you need to hear in the midst of this process. But don't walk through this alone. There is a way to walk through this that God has given us through his grace A group of people that can help you understand how to maneuver through the process. And there's a way, even if it means difficulty, even if it's scary, that at the end of the day, how do you know, wife, whether your husband might get saved, or how do you know, husband, whether your 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 wife or your how whether you will save your wife? Trust God with this. And potentially, even if you need to, hand them over to Satan. Is everybody with me on this? I don't say this, I hope, from a position of arrogance. 
I don't say this in a vacuum without the understanding of difficulty. I've sat across from mamas with kids that have looked at me and said, yeah, but if he goes, how are we gonna make it? What are we gonna do? If I let her go, I don't know where to go next in life. So I'm not saying this is something that's just all bed of roses and puppy dogs and rainbows. But if you truly care about this spouse of yours, if you truly care about where you're in with Jesus, we walk through this process because God has called us to walk through this process because God knows what he is doing. We can trust him with this. And so let me repeat this again. If you're somebody currently right now married to an unbeliever or married to a believer who's acting like an unbeliever, come talk to us. It might be one of those things that who knows, 1 Thessalonians 5, they might just be faint-hearted. They might be in some way maybe weak. They're not obstinate. They're not idle. They're not looking to fight. They're just trying to figure out things because there are so many people that we've brought to Jesus. Maybe they didn't understand what they were doing and now they're just confused and they're trying to wrestle it through. Let us walk with you through that process, not alone. And if you're somebody here today that is that way, let me say it again, let us walk with you. Don't walk alone through questioning what does it mean to follow Jesus. We're here. Also, don't, when I say do this alone, you are not to determine whether or not somebody is a follower of Jesus Christ. The church as a whole determines whether somebody is a follower of Jesus Christ. God never grants that authority to individuals. He gives it and grants it to churches to make that determination through a process and so don't anybody please say, yeah, you know, I'm just, I decided to just walk away from my, my wife or walk away from my husband because, you know, just in, deep in my heart, I don't think they're a follower of Jesus and so therefore I'm going to walk away. That is not your job to determine whether they're a follower of Jesus or not. It is the job of the church. And not only that, but to walk down that path, we need each other. Gosh, I didn't know what that meant until I watched my mom walk through it. I watched the highs and the lows of being there. I watched as so many godly people walked alongside of her in some of the deepest, darkest moments. We're not designed to walk this one alone. We're not designed to make that decision on our own. We're designed to do it in a community. And so if you're somebody here today, again, let us walk with you. Secondly, though, here's the deal. When it comes to church discipline, I don't have the right to walk a person down church discipline unless they've granted me that right through a thing called membership. Now, I know there's a lot of you out there, you know, and you've you've said different things about membership, you know, and again, you are where you are, and and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it to even put you in this weird spot, but I'm just telling you, if you and I have not made an agreement between one another where I have the right as your shepherd to come into your life and to bring discipline to bear biblically, none of this now applies, well, a good chunk of this doesn't apply to you because you never gave me that right. See, in our, in our doctrinal statement, one of the things that we tried to earn, excuse me, in our membership booklet, 
is that a person that comes to Cornerstone and says, I want to be a part of this, is they agree that they will submit to be disciplined by God through his Holy Spirit to lovingly exercise biblical process. Oops, wrong one. Did I put up the wrong one? Oh, no, here we go. Sorry. That's why you don't do drugs in high school, kids. <laughs> Church discipline your relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ to submit to discipline when approached biblically by brothers and sisters in Christ and to submit to discipline by church leadership if the need should arise. In other words, there's an agreement that we have between one another. I don't have the right to bring about church discipline in your life unless you say to me, Todd, you're the shepherds. You are the ones that are supposed to keep watch over my soul. If you don't tell me that, and you don't tell me it in a way that we've asked you to tell us to do it, I don't mean to be weird about this, but I'm not supposed to come into your life and do it. Not only that, in the state of California, because people have abused this idea of church discipline so much, they said, look, make sure that the person that you're disciplining understands that they're going to be disciplined, because if you didn't in some way create an agreement between each other that you were going to do this in their life, and we have actual evidence that they signed something to tell us that, now all of a sudden the state can come after us for not doing what they've asked us to do. See, church membership now, can it's a little bit more, isn't it, than just, ah, you know, they just want to pad the rolls. I already signed the document. Like, why do I have to sign it again? Why? Your soul. We keep watch over your soul. And if you don't let me know, then it's not my responsibility. Let us know if that's our responsibility because when you look at it now, for those of us that are leaders, we will exercise, do I have them right? Where's the one? Go, graciously exercise church discipline of our members and leaders when necessary, including removing an unrepentant member from fellowship at Cornerstone with the ultimate goal of seeking the repentance and restoration. In other words, that's the agreement that we make. Now, on some levels, I get this is, this is heavy right now. But I want you to know this is not a game to me. You all in here that are followers of Jesus were bought with the very precious blood of Jesus. You are the most valuable things in this universe outside of God himself. I'm asked to take this responsibility. And other elders are asked to take this responsibility extremely seriously. To not do so would be to belittle or to minimize the significant task of what it means to come alongside of others. Like it talks about in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every person complete in Christ. One day, me and the rest of the elders will stand before God on this and give an answer for it. And so as you push back, maybe, and sometimes you've had some very good pushbacks and we've had to adjust and we've had to change, but just understand, I don't have to stand in front of you one day. I've got to stand in front of God with the rest of the elders. Did you care for my people like I asked you to care for them? And so I'm beckoning you now, come to membership. Sign the document. If you agree that it's our job to keep watch over your souls, let us know that by doing what we've asked you to do. But let me finish this way.
don't miss the outcome. About 10, 15 years ago, a woman came into my office and we started to talk back and forth about her life and she was struggling through different things. And I looked over at her. You ever had those moments where you know something's not right? And I looked at her and I said, there's something that is really plaguing you that you don't want to tell me about. I go, would you? I watched her head fall. And I looked at her and I said, what? She began to talk about her inappropriate relationship she had had with another man. She was a part of another local church. And that church loved her enough to discipline her. We're sitting in my office and she goes, what am I supposed to do? I said, well, it's not what you're supposed to do. It's what we're supposed to do. She goes, what do you mean? I go, I want to walk you back to that church. I go, let's go back. Let's repent. Let's trust God that that's actually what he called us to do. I remember her sitting back in her chair and going, I don't know. But then by the grace of God, she looked at me and she goes, let's go do it. I called up that particular local church in town and I said, you know, hey, I'm Pastor Todd. Um, a person that used to be a former member that you've disciplined would love to come back. I don't know what your process is for asking for forgiveness and repentance, but she wants to. And the guy goes, who are you again? <laughs> I go, I'm, I'm, I'm Pastor Todd from Cornerstone. He goes, we have disciplined so many people and no one has ever called us like this. And I said back to him, I go, well, I'm not that great, but I just believe in the process. I remember that night we took her back in front of the elders. Oh my gosh. I'm sitting next to her. Her hands were just like, like a little schoolgirl, you know, about to go to the principal's office, you know, and I'm trying to, you know, put my arm around her every once in a while. It's okay, it's okay. And so they asked me to start, you know, I explained what, the, what was going on and what she's asking for. And this one guy that I never would have imagined all of a sudden got up and I'm like, oh no, what is he gonna do? And as he's walking towards us, I see tears just streaming down his face. He got down on his knees in front of her and he held her hand and he goes to her, you are forgiven. She starts bawling, I didn't bawl. <laughs> I'm hardcore, I'm from Wyoming, man. We don't cry there. California people cry. No, I was crying like a little baby, man. I'm just, <laughs> I wish I had a video camera so I could show people this is what it's supposed to be about. And one by one, these elders came up and then at the very end, they all put their hands on her and affirmed her. And then they brought her back to this local church, announced her to everyone, everyone just hugging and crying and different things. In other words, that's why we do it. Amen? So, I tell that story because it always doesn't work that way. In fact, I would say most times it doesn't work out. But even sitting here in Cornerstone one day, somebody that we walked through church discipline came and repented and I was sitting right there. And all of a sudden this dad that was sitting right there with his son as we're presenting this person to the flock as one who has repented that you can receive back into fellowship the dad looked over at his son, he goes, listen to me. So I'm like, yes, dad, you know, I'm like, yeah, daddy. You may never see this again. 
so thrilled in what's about ready to take place. Son, this is what it's all about. And so Cornerstone, when it comes to people that are married that are believers, grace. When it comes to being married to an unbeliever, grace. When it comes to being married to someone who claims to be a believer that probably is an unbeliever, law, no. Grace. And guess what you're going to learn next week about being single? Grace. And so on the count of three, Cornerstone, as worship to Jesus, I'm going to have you say grace. One, two, three. Grace. Grace. Amen.